You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the Gangland Wire studio, in the middle of the COVID virus series of episodes that I'm putting out quite a few, as you all know. And uh, You can always hit me up on the Venmo app, but for a buck or two. But don't worry about that to list things over. Everybody needs to hang on to their own money, and I'm happy to do this and keep you guys entertained out there. I have on the phone here uh, Richard Mullins, who is a retired Oklahoma City detective sergeant. He's written a couple of books, and in and, and one of them, he touches base on some stuff where some Kansas City organized crime fellas got involved down in uh, northeastern Oklahoma around the Grand Lake of the Cherokees, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Richard, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you, Gary. So, Richard, why don't you start off telling the uh, wiretappers out there a little bit about your career. I know you, you retired a detective sergeant, but you probably did other things other than be a detective. Oklahoma City, when I went to work in 1964, Still had an old downtown, hundred bars, uh, beer bars, uh, private clubs. All the crooks, when they came through, ended up in that area. And being a young guy, I just loved being downtown where all the fights was taking place. The burglaries, the uh, armed robberies, the killings, and all that stuff. And I spent three years riding downtown. I just, I just really enjoyed getting to put the bad guys away. Sometimes we have bank robbers come through from elsewhere where within four minutes we pick those up. So I got to do things a lot of patrolmen didn't just simply by riding downtown with a a big, at that time, older officer. And he had grew up in Oklahoma City, so he knew that part. He knew the east side. We uh, we just kind of roamed out of our district and picked up one of the bad guys, which, which was a lot of fun, but uh, I couldn't turn down being a motor detective a little less than three years later. And in those days, things have changed in the Oklahoma City like elsewhere, but as a detective, you just worked all crimes, especially the night shift. You, if something happened on a robbery or a homicide, a rape or whatever, you got to, got to investigate it. So that was uh, the way things were back then. We didn't have really any way of... Uh, of uh, locating people like they do now, the CSI and all this uh, blood work. Ours were just good gumshoe investigations. You know, Richard, I don't know how anybody gets away with anything anymore with all these cameras and, and uh, DNA and, and all that. Man, I tell you what, you'd have to commit a crime in a hazmat suit with, your, with some kind of a mask over your whole face and then hope you got away. You know, I tell my friends when I talk about uh, modern police work, I said uh, the uh, murderers just don't have a chance. They, uh, if they watch CSI and all these things and these, these true detective shows, they might think twice because it's hard to get away with homicide. Now, I'm not speaking about the uh, organized crime, but just the average person, they're going to get caught. It may take a while, but they're going to get caught. But... Uh, but that's, that's what we did back in those days. We got into some things. My uh, partner and I, the same partner I had in uh, patrol division, was told by the lieutenant one night, you need to find these guys that are pulling all these wrong robberies. They're going to kill somebody. So we took the challenge, and sure enough, we located them in the act. And 
in the ensuing situation, my partner, of course, they had to shoot and kill one of them, but uh, that was life then. You just accepted it. Looking back, it's a little bit different, but uh, it was fast-paced, and I enjoyed it. Just being promoted as a sergeant kind of changed things. You work different divisions, but also you rotated through the night shift, which you actually was in charge of the detective division. So that, that was pretty interesting. Uh, I didn't consider the detectives on crime scenes need my supervision, but I was there. We, uh, we had good investigators. So I spent my uh, last 14 years on the police department as a detective sergeant. But you know, there's a time to retire. And I was fortunate enough to, to go to the state and be the state of Oklahoma's first environmental crime investigator. Oh, really? Which is sort of political, because the politicians got their fingers in various things, but I did that for 14 years. R- Richard, were you still on when the Oklahoma City bombing went down, Were you? Were you or were you retired by then? I was retired, and okay. uh, a funny thing about that, I guess it's funny, I, uh, I had tried to arrest a guy. And uh, he pulled a gun, put up my chest, and, and pulled the trigger, but it was jammed. And in a suing fight, he had slammed me against the elevator, which bruised my back and ended up giving what's called a foot drop, which means my foot wasn't working when the, the bombing took place, so I couldn't go down and sift the guys. But all the retired guys, they volunteered, they walked down, they helped with all that. But uh, that foot drop kind of put me back for a while, but uh, that particular guy that I had to fight with was an escape con, which I didn't know it when I approached him. So you never know what you're getting into when you represent the law enforcement, Gary, as you know. That's for sure. So all your retirees went down to help. That, that doesn't surprise me, to help with the sifting through the, the debris down there. I, I imagine everybody, whoever was a copper, went and had to be part of that. Yeah, even the retirees that uh, had been in a horse patrol took their horses down for crowd control and whatever. So the police department itself, the guys had a lot of overtime, and they declined a raise that year, which I think speaks pretty highly for them. It but, does. Uh, the uh, a detective that worked for me in auto theft unit is actually the person who found the axle with identification numbers on it hmm. that led to the arrest of the people involved in that. Now, if you read any books, it says the FBI did that. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean there. I, I have read one that an FBI agent wrote, Larry Tungate. I, I can't remember. He was not, like, first on the scene or anything. I, I don't know what he put in. I'll have to go look. I'll dig that out and see what he said in that, but, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean there. Interesting. So, you know, you, uh, your first book, how did you, uh, you know, being a retired cop, I know you've written a lot of reports, but there's a difference in writing a police report and writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, there is a difference. I really had to learn that. I was writing about myself, my days on the police department, what I saw going on around me. Then I run across two brothers and sisters who was active criminals during my time, armed robberies, burglaries, whatever. So the first book actually was built around them and some of the running mates. So I dropped what I was writing about the uh, about myself in a PD and and worked on that and ended up that they was involved with a guy you know named Craig Grayson. 
Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was their attorney doing a lot of the deals, but they was a quite interesting family. So, uh, now, folks, the name of that book is Real Oklahoma Outlaws, Major Crimes, Prison Time, and Jailbreaks, The True Story of the Justice and Davis Crime Families. And, and he mentioned that their lawyer was a guy named Frank Grayson, who, if you go back and listen to my podcast about Jimmy Duarte or James Duarte, we had a mob guy up here in Kansas City named James Duarte that went from Kansas City down to the Grand Lake of the Cherokees in the northeast corner of, of Oklahoma and bribed the prosecutor and bribed the sheriff and, and tried to take over the whole county and open up all the joints to gambling and prostitution and, and you know, no closing hours if they didn't want to. It was a, kind of a tourist area, so they figured a lot of people would really be uh, drawn down there be kind of like hot springs, open an open city in in Oklahoma. Uh, didn't get it done because they had a Jess Roberts, the owner of the Mister Yuck Club, refused to go along with it. And uh, Jimmy Duarte sent a guy named Cliff Bishop and a, uh, a organized crime associate out of Tulsa named Jack Michael King out to kill Mister Roberts, and they didn't get him killed. And he testified against all of them. And I believe Mister Grayson went to jail, if I remember right. But he he represented this family, huh? You know, Gary, I I covered everything that you just said towards the end of that book. That that is it. That is in my uh, oh good outlaws. It it just led to that. He just got bigger and bigger, and think he could get by with anything. And of course, northeast Oklahoma at that time, I guess that was pretty easy around the lake. Uh, things went up there. It wouldn't go to the rest of the state. Open gambling or what, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that, that that's covered. So uh, I noticed that this this book starts off with a home invasion. I noticed you and your partner caught some home invasion people, and your partner ended up killing one of them. So what uh, is that? The same home invasion? What what was the story there? No, the uh, actually the well, my partner killed. The, it was an armed robber, and we didn't know that was escaped from the penitentiary out of uh, Colorado. But we call him an active armed robber, and uh, you know when somebody resists arrest, you haven't got time to yeah. buy his motorized and have a cup of coffee so that's yeah. what so what was this home invasion that started kicked off this book were these uh, this crime family they involved in home invasions no they had uh, they had wanted to rob a grocery store in north Oklahoma northwest Oklahoma and they got got tired of waiting for the, arm, the armored car to come by which was their MO and way they brought in fresh cash so they decided to actually just go by and get the uh, grocery store owner from his home about midnight because that was that started the home invasion. That started yeah. the whole ball rolling. That was not the normal thing they did. They just normally robbed the grocery stores, and uh, which was simple to do for them. And they was heading to Colorado to hide out, and that's that's where they messed up and got caught. Anyways, two of them ended up escaping from the. Uh, the county jail, and that's the start of the book. And then I actually go back to where all of them are kids and bring them all the way forward till they get together, the crimes they commit, and uh, all the time they spend in the penitentiaries. And uh, I just uh, kind of weave that together, two families, two crime families, uh, of which their their connection with Grayson was that he could uh, always represent them and try to work deals for them. But, uh, he worked his own deal, but he wants a federal penitentiary. 
Okay, well, that sounds like a great book. Now, we want to talk about, most importantly, we want to talk about your recent book, uh, Catherine, the True Story of Machine Gun Kelly's Wife. Uh, how'd you get into that? Well, it was kind of a strange thing. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had written a book called Persons in Hiding. And I was reading that book, and I read what he said about Maul Barker. And I said, this is not true. Maul Barker was not a gun toting head of a bunch of uh, crooks. Yeah. So from that, I read what he had written about Catherine Kelly, which would be Machine Gun Kelly's wife. I thought, man, this is this is just too much. So I got to researching the real story of Catherine Kelly. I was fortunate enough to find her grandson in Maryland, who was very cooperative. She was involved in a couple armed robberies in Oklahoma City that nobody ever really covered. And I, I researched that. I got the appeals. I added that to the book. So she started out very young on the wrong side of the wall. She just, she just enjoyed the excitement of being a crook, but she always had a man out front. Catherine first married at, uh, she's only 14, had a child at 15. And uh, she divorced him right away, and then she married another man named Lanny Brewer, who was a, a decent fellow also. She left him at age 19 to end up in Oklahoma City. And there she hooked up with a young married man, a soap salesman, and she convinced him to do a couple of very unplanned, unplanned armed robberies. And of course, they got caught on that, and uh, he got five years in McAllister. And she got five years of hard labor from McAllister, but on appeal, because there were so many errors in the trial that she didn't have to do the time, they didn't retry her. So she just moves on. She goes down to Texas, and uh, and uh, she marries a, a local man down there. And, of course, J. Edgar Hoover's got his version on that, and everybody has copied his version where he committed suicide, but he really didn't commit suicide. That Catherine had killed him, and uh, he left a suicide note type, but he couldn't type him. Just things like that. Everybody yeah. who wrote, everybody who wrote about Catherine after that copied uh, Jenny Edgar Hoover's fantasy book. I call it. Yeah. But anyway, Charles did commit suicide because he couldn't handle her like none of the rest of the guys could. And then next guy she moved on to a name Willie, guy named Willie Russo in Fort Worth. She got involved with him, the burglarizing a, uh, a a new fur store that was just about to open. They took a bunch of furs. They ended up in her house. But Willie takes a rap for everything, says, oh no, she knows nothing about it. And he gets five years out of it. And she just keeps it moving on until she ends up with <laughs> George Kelly. Yeah. His real name was George Francis Barnes. And she molded him. He was just a bootlegger. He served time in a couple places for possession of uh, moonshine. But she molded him into an arm robber. That was exciting. They made a lot of money. He robbed, uh, I don't know how many banks up and down what's known as a Midwest corridor. Yeah. From, from Minnesota, probably down to the Gulf. And just, he just hit what he called 10 can banks, the way banks. 
I did a Bonnie and Clyde tour on my motorcycle, just hit different spots, and I started noticing that what they were back in those days, 169 and 69 Highway were the main drags north and south. And they were doing all these robberies off of, is like the I-35 robbers, 69 and 69 Highway robbers, and I bet uh, all the rest of these bank robbers did the same thing. They may switch, go off uh, 20 miles or so, but then they get back on one of those two highways and they head out. True, of course, uh, George, you know, most of those guys kind of knew the side roads, too, which a lot of the old movies show they flying down dirt roads, but they knew those. And law enforcement, they didn't have a chance with that because in those days, bank robbery wasn't a federal crime, so it was up to the sheriff's office. And once the sheriff got to the county line, he couldn't cross it to try to chase them. So yeah. it, was, it was good for the crooks that run loose, as you know, in the late 20s and early 30s. Now, George Kelly didn't didn't rob drilling stations and uh, grocery stores like uh, some of the other guys did, but he, he stayed with the banks. And he had, he had a great run for about three years. He and Catherine took a lot of, a lot of great vacations, New Orleans, Puerto Rico in place, but that wasn't enough for her. And she bought a machine gun for him, and that's where he gets the name Machine Gun Kelly with her, with the hype that she gives him. And, of course, Jagger Hoover loved that that he, he really, really played that up big time. By the time he gets called for the kidnapping in Oklahoma City of Charles Ursel, everybody thinks there's really a, a bad guy, Machine Gun Kelly, out there running around shooting people, which isn't true. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, back then, you could go to a hardware store and buy a Thompson machine gun, if I, if I understand that right. They came out too late to help in the war deal. And yeah. They had all these machine guns, and the government just sold them. They were just everywhere. It's not it's not like he was the only one that had one. You're familiar with all the crimes involved in those. But, yeah. Uh, she had him out practicing with it, one thing or another, but he didn't really like it. It was clumsy, but he only used it one time when he kidnapped Charles Ursel. In 1933 in Oklahoma City, you know, he was a big multi-millionaire, and that set off what I would say a newspaper frenzy. I bet. In those days, there wasn't TV to cover things. A little bit on the radio, but the newspaper guys was it, and they had to, for 90 days, they're chasing whoever they figure out that it is Machine Gun Kelly that's that's behind the deal and then of course his name is constantly in the newspaper and albert bates was his partner in the kidnapping and uh, he was an old-time bank robber so anyways the newspaper had a field day it was fantastic for them yeah that would be like kidnapping bill gates today probably or jeff bezos of amazon kidnapped somebody like this guy it's, it's sort of like what the uh tv is covering right now it's constant, constant in your face. Well, that's, that's where the news media was. And, of course, come trial time, that was more fodder for the newspaper. How bad. Especially and then you got a beautiful woman involved, too. Made it even sexier. Well, while she was in the Oklahoma County Jail, she had, the newsmen had access to her and has continued taking pictures of her in various, uh, I wouldn't say poses, but uh, yeah. they, they would put in the newspaper what she was wearing daily and she just and she had a and she told all kinds of stories that wasn't true to the newsman about where they got her and where she met uh, George Kelly and all that but they ended up but you know that that particular trial of uh, George and Catherine Kelly 
was the first time that they allowed flashbulbs to be used in taking pictures during the trial. News cameras was there. Yeah. The old news cameras those days made a noise as they, as they worked. And it was actually just a circus-type atmosphere, I would say. And Judge Vaughn, who was the presiding federal judge, not only allowed the courtroom to be full, he allowed people to stand up in the back. Wow. Which never, that was never happened before or since. Hmm. But it was very hot, and there was no air, and everybody was fanning themselves. Everybody couldn't believe this actually seeing George Machine Gun Kelly, probably the the most famous crook of his time. I imagine Bonnie Clyde wasn't said, but they was killers. He wasn't. But that was, that was quite a trial, and... Uh, she managed to drag a bunch of her family into it. They also got prison, prison sentences. She was convicted and given a life sentence, and she wasn't actually ever proven to be involved in the kidnapping. She was convicted for allegedly writing threatening letters to the judge and everybody hmm. after, after the kidnapping. So she got life, George got life, his friends got life. Things continued on, and... Uh, he went to Alcatraz, as you probably know, one of the first people to go there. But they made they made hash out of that just forever. And you're probably familiar with all the B movies made about Machine Gun Kelly. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Magazines. Yeah. What a nickname. And all that comes from J. Edgar Hoover's made up stories. And once once he got a book out, people just copied that and recopied that. So my deal was I set out to tell the true story of Catherine, who was a wife of Machine Gun Kelly, and I did that. It took a quite a while of researching, finding information, talking to people, but uh, I think it's a great book. It's not near exciting as the Pulp Fiction. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Real life is never as exciting as uh, fiction. Tell me some of the steps, some of the places that you went to research on this. I, I know I've done some. Uh, the old newspaper articles will be pretty detailed. I mean, they really wrote some colorful uh, copy back then. Uh, and get, you can get some decent quotes out of those. Where else did you go? Was there any archives? The FBI, did you do a Freedom of Information Act on this? Well, that's what I was just about to mention. The Freedom of Information Act uncovered a lot of stuff that Jagger Hoover would never dream would be public. And everything that ever happened during that investigation is available there. You may not get all of it the first time you ask or the second time you ask, but if you keep trying, you get all the information. Hmm. And you probably know that they tried to hook Machine Gun Kelly up with the killings at the Kansas City Massacre at the train station. Yeah, I've read that. You know, they tried to hook everybody into that at one time or another. They were so frantically trying to solve that one. Two coppers were uh -huh. killed up here and an agent. I also covered that, that in the book, all the people that he tried to get. As they slowly got killed or something, he was just down to just about nobody to, to hang for that. But, yeah. Uh, his agents did a very dishonorable jo job trying to uh, hook people up. But, Yes, I went several places. Uh, I actually went down to uh, Paradise, Texas, where George Kelly is buried, and they've got a museum for him down there. And at the cemetery, they've got one of these uh, historical markers yeah. for him with completely erroneous information, but I understand the little town likes to attract visitors, and a lot of them do come through and take pictures and uh, write little stories and whatever. 
but uh, it's a big deal for Paradise, Texas. And they're nice people at the museum. They treated me nice. They drove me over the country. They took me where they held Charles Ursel for ransom. Yeah. They took me to that location. That was interesting. And uh, a lot of newspaper articles are available. You just have to look and search to find them. Yeah. And that was that and uh, there were several books that, that had a little bit of information I could either kind of copy from or research from. And, you know, Joe Ursel, who's no kin to him, wrote a great book called The Year of Fear. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Robert Hunger wrote The Union Station Massacre, which I looked into. Yeah. And uh, you're probably familiar with all those deals. I, I know the I know the Unger book on the station. I didn't I don't know the I didn't know the other one, but uh it's uh and that's uh, was the other one written back more contemporaneously at the time that all this happened. No, these are all new books. New books, okay. All, all from the files of the FBI. But if you haven't got the Union Station massacre, I would recommend it. It says the original sins of J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I've read that. He, he, he sinned a lot because uh, you know he didn't like local police at all. Yeah. <laughs> He never gave them credit. And two detectives at Fort Worth had the kidnapping actually solved and give it to the... There wasn't FBI in those days. It was called the Department of Justice. But they laid it out because they don't get, they don't get credit for that. But one of them had got pretty close to Catherine, spending time with her, talking to her, listening to her. She had what I call loose lips in a book. She would tell these guys about bank robberies that he pulled. But if you ever did anything real big, she said, you go, you pull him back to Texas for the bank robbers. Or she knew this uh, kidnapping was coming down. So, yeah, it, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of uh, sorting out truth, as you know, just like an investigation. Yeah. I had to go to several courthouses, and I found stuff that nobody else, for some reason, had uh, had not uncovered in reference to Catherine and some of her marriages. As you know, as detective, you enjoy the hunt. You don't enjoy the paperwork that follows it, but you enjoy the hunt, and I did, and that, that was quite interesting. So the story is true from A to Z. I didn't make up anything. I didn't put in fillers to make connections. So I think it's a good book if anybody really wants to know who Catherine was. Catherine's birth name was, was not Catherine. She never was named Catherine. She just come up with that. Her name was uh, Lyra Cleo. And that she come up with Catherine along that line. Huh, interesting. Uh, she had a lot. She had a lot of names. Uh, she got she got at least two other guys with Ice George in prison with her doings, but uh, she she was very interesting and she had some magic with men that I try to describe in the book, but it's kind of hard. Yeah. Otherwise, she could just wrap a man around her her finger, and she had what I call a disarming smile. <laughs> so she she's an interesting person. It was fun. Uh, he was never a gun maul, as so many people have said. She never carried a gun. She never used a gun. She didn't care about guns, but that don't make good books. So the stories was always her, her having a weapon. Yeah. She never. She never had a weapon. She never. She never shot a gun. Kind of like Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde. There, there's oh, there's a big controversy over that. Supposedly she had a gun and she ex- helped execute a state trooper, Texas state trooper, up there in, in uh, right outside of Fort Worth, but. Uh, other people would say, you know, she 
she never carried any guns. She, they may have had one for those pictures, but as far as being somebody running in with a gun and all that, they, they would claim that she didn't do all that. You know, I don't know. I've, I've actually got a book written by uh, her sister the, the year after they got killed, and she had kept notes all that time. It really tells a true story. Oh, really? And it's a very rare book, which I means I'm going to hang on to it. Yeah. But, uh, that's one thing that got me involved in crime writing, what's true and what's not true. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, but uh, I've had a start on another one. You just can't sit still, so I'm, <laughs> I'm, trying to work, I'm trying to work on a local homicide right now. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Richard, I really appreciate you coming on here and telling us all about uh, uh, Oklahoma criminals and Machine Gun Kelly particularly. I've done some episodes on uh, Dillinger and done some episodes on Bonnie and Clyde, of course, but uh, I've never done, I've done two or three episodes on John Dillinger. I've never done anything on Machine Gun Kelly. I did one on the Union Station Massacre. So I, I appreciate you coming on here and doing this. It's uh, uh, And folks, uh, the names of those two books are Real Oklahoma Outlaws, Major Crimes, Prison Time, and Jailbreaks, The True Story of the Justice and Davis Crime Families, and uh, Catherine, The True Story of Machine Gun Kelly's Wife. They were famous mainly for the machine gun of Machine Gun Kelly, but they also went down for the kidnapping of Charles Urschel, a multi-millionaire oil man in Oklahoma City, and it was a media circus after that. It would be like kidnapping uh, Bill Gates today, so... Richard, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Gary. Like you say, both books are available on Amazon. All right. Thanks a lot, Richard. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, folks, that was Richard Mullins, a retired Oklahoma City policeman. Uh, he's done a lot of research, and has, he has two fascinating books about 1930s criminals, 1930s to 1950s. If you're a veteran you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD and is connected to your service time, call the local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area. And if you can't get to one of those, there's a national hotline out there, and this would be particularly good for maybe relatives and loved ones of a, a vet that's exhibiting problems. 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or go to the website, www.ptsd.va.gov. This site contains a lot of really good resources for people that want to know more about this problem. So like I said before, we're, we're in the COVID virus territory right now. I'm putting out a lot more episodes. I appreciate all you listeners out there. You know, don't forget, I got my Venmo app up, Gangland Wire. If you want to uh, give me, if you want to buy me a cup of coffee, I got my books and movies out on Amazon. My most recent movie is Brothers Against Brothers, the Savella Spiro War. Then I've got Gangland Wire. This is a story of skimming from Las Vegas casinos. You can get both of those on Amazon for $1.99 rental. Got my book. Be sure and get the Kindle version because I've got all the wiretaps hooked up to it. You can go right to them. Leaving Las Vegas, how FBI wiretaps ended mom domination of Las Vegas casinos. If you're sitting at home, you want to take a mob tour of Kansas City, go get my app off the Apple Store called the Kansas City Mob Tour. I think that's all i got to sell. So you guys stay safe out there, and we'll keep putting these podcasts out for a while. Good night. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.